Laugh a Day with Comedy AM founder Cassandra Gordon. Hi, it's Cassandra Gordon at uh, Laugh a Day. Um, Janana, uh, my co host, is a bit unwell, so I hope she gets better really soon. Who do I have today? We have. Mark Hanley. Hey, Mark. How's it going? Hey, Cassandra. It's going well, actually. He's so happy. I like Mark. Mark is like a ray of sunshine. <laughs> I wish I could marry Mark, but Mark said no. It's very superficial, Cassandra. It's very superficial. I'm down for superficial because someone mm. wants to marry me. So. Someone that. wants to marry you? No, you do. You do. Oh, I do. But you're already taken, Cassandra. I Dang. hear that. I hear that. I hear that. Dang. And I can see him in the corner. Anyways. You put him in the corner, and he still wants to marry you. He doesn't want to marry me. But oh, okay. Just, let's not put my person. Anyway, so a laugh a day. We're supposed to be, be joyous on this on this lovely day. I'm joyous. joyous. I am. You know, I'm a, I, I'm a moody mare. Probably the most moodiest mare you've ever met in your life, and the most cynical mare. Anyway, never. Never. You, Cassandra? Uh, oh yeah, no. I have. No. I have. I have times. I have times, Mark. <laughs> So everybody has their moments. Everyone Come has on. their moments. So how did you get in comedy? So I know you. You're very humorous. I know you because you win hum- a lot of humorous competitions uh-huh. or impromptu speaking funny competitions. You're an improv. You're always telling me comedy tips. You're my comedy guru. Um, you always tell me that I look like Dorothy Dandridge. You always make me feel good. That's why I wanted to marry you. You make me feel. You make me laugh. It made me feel like no other man has never made me feel. So here I am. <laughs> you see, trust an older white Irish gay male to tell you about Dorothy Dandridge. <laughs> he said, who, who's she? I said, Dorothy Dandridge, get with it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, how did I get into comedy? I didn't, I don't know if I'm really, I don't see myself as being comic. Or, or humorous then. Let's or humorous. humorous. I, didn't, I didn't see myself necessarily as being humorous um, mm-hmm. until... Until when? I worked, I did some acting classes with a French teacher called Philippe Gaulier, who is famous for telling you that you are shit to get off the stage after fewer than 30 seconds. And I was very shit to get off the stage for a long time. And, um, and then you were just like, get off the stage. Then it was just get off the stage. Yeah. yeah. You are boring, get off the stage. And it was also, but he starts the year, he does this whole thing, whole series of things where he starts off with a game and does Greek tragedy and then, um, uh, what else, does he do quite serious things before he gets into the comedies. And we were doing Greek tragedy and I thought, I'm a tragedian, you know. That is my calling in life, I want to be Hamlet or something. I was never (laughs) that taken that seriously on stage, in a sense. Sense was more comic, so either a defense mechanism or else something that I was showing was more comic. Um, and my father was humorous. And I suppose it's since my father died five years ago that my humor has developed more. Even before that. So you took before. his humor and took it with you? A little bit, a little bit, yeah. And I had been doing that before, but uh, partly it's a defense mechanism and a self-defense mechanism and a way of maybe keeping people at a slight distance from me, but finding out about them. Ah, that's why you, so are you keeping distance away from me? That's why you make jokes about me all the time. I thought, I thought we were close. Do I make jokes about you, Cassandra, or do I make jokes with you? With me, and sometimes you tell me off as well. Do I tell you off? A little bit, sometimes, when I'm moany. Yeah, okay. that's, what you, that's what you expect 
your Irish gay uncle to do? Uncle? How do you go from hun- husband to uncle? <laughs> Jeez, man. Okay. I'm the older man. I'm the older man. Okay. Uh, no, but that's, that's what a true friend does sometimes. He says, get real. Yeah. You know, I it's fine. You. We've heard. Um, we've heard it. And now you need to do something. But I, that's normally when I'm talking to myself through talking to you, probably, because I'm going through exactly the same thing. I hear you. So I'm so frustrated. So you feel like you get a lot of joy of making people laugh or entertaining people? I think that I spent the first... I'm 51 now and I spent Never. the first... Never. He doesn't look like it. Does not look like it. Lighting and makeup. Mm. It's, it's bright in look here. It's at, look at Philips. Look at L'Oreal. Um, I spent, I'd say, the first 50 years of my life being very, very confused. I was a big daydreamer as a child and very sensitive and really attached to the apron strings and didn't know what hit me when I <laughs> went to primary school, when I went into reception. And I feel like that was the way in nearly most of my life. And then I got very confused because I asked myself questions about very basic things, like how do people get together? How does the world work? How do you have a career? How can you enjoy that? How do you get up and enjoy your weekends? How do you make breakfast? So I feel as if I was very confused for a long time and still am a bit. And therefore I want other people to answer the questions for me and come up with how they do it. So part of it is kind of like, almost like a teenager not understanding the world or a child. So that kind of influences the way how you communicate your comedy, how I've been humorous, like how does, how does that all connect? I want approval. It's very key. Yeah, and a, lot, now, a lot of comedians are not honest about that. Like, why do you, I want people to laugh at me, make feel that I'm, I'm, I'm important, I'm important. Yeah, I think it's the recognition, maybe not to feel important, but to feel, I feel I've struck a chord, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I've realised that I like to kind of puncture a bit some of the, so, I like social conventions, they're quite nice sometimes. Hello, how are you, excuse me. Because it, it can show, done properly, a certain generosity of living in the world. You're taking care of other people. You don't push barge in front of them. Uh, but sometimes we use conventions as be very, I don't want to know anything about you. And I kind of like to sometimes just gently rib people and try to get a little joke and puncture under the So you're saying you, you, you like to be mean? No. What it's a it? gentle rib. It's a pleasant, <laughs> let's have, a, let's have a, a laugh together. Let me say something slightly left field that you're not expecting from me at this moment and see how you react and see if we can play a game together okay. but play it together rather than at you and put us people down yeah because mm. I think if I'm if you know when you can play those games together in a very superficial example well not superficial but um, stereotypical example I suppose I'm kind of a very obviously gay man with really? very camp well oh, I, can, I can be quite camp in, mm. in moments so if I meet another camp man like that or a woman who of a certain personality certain temperament can have that really easy quick conversation and that can be quite fun if you both recognize that you're on the same wavelength because you're just batting a little ball around the air it's a bit like playing badminton or if I meet um, say somebody of my own background or generation from Ireland and you have a few things in common you can just kind of throw things across and have a bit of a laugh with it. So I'm not, I don't really want to put, I don't think I want to put people down unless it's in terms of behavior or they're being nasty. Mm. And I think it's very important. I don't always follow this, 
but I think it's important to punch up and not down if mm. you're going to be caustic with your humor. Mm-hmm. Especially in in the workplace, you got to be fair. Because say if your manager says something makes fun of you, it's fun. But you can yeah. kind of make fun of your manager in in it, yeah, yeah, in a, in a certain, certain kind of way. way. Yeah. And if you're going to be satirical about things in the world, it's I think you can be satirical about people who've got power, and that changes. I mean, it could be political power, it could be economic power. So to be satirical about the bankers, the big management of the bankers who sold us down the Swanee 10 years ago, I think is fine. To be satirical and nasty about people who are more vulnerable than you, and taking an extreme example, perhaps somebody who's living on the streets, and you know, we could all be there. You could have two hours. That is just nasty. Mm, mm, <laughs> There's mm. a difference. Other people have power, and you're you're really trying to shake them and see and get them to think about. It. So, when I'm talking to people, I work. I've worked in quite a few customer-facing roles, mm. such as a tour guide, or um, I, the moment I work in retail, I've worked mm-hmm. in learning and development. And it's useful to be able to make some kind of relationship happen, mm, professional mm, relationship mm. happen, with people you don't know very quickly. Mm, mm. And you might meet, know them for an hour, you might be with them for a whole day, you might be with them for a whole week. Mm-hmm. Um, it's nice to get them to relax so that you can laugh together. Mm, mm, and I learned mm, this. Mm. One of the things I learned um, in France was because I, I spent quite a number of years living in Paris and I taught English to business people about mm-hmm. my own age and they're very sensitive and they don't they're, certainly their secondary school system they said to me they were always being put down by the teachers the teachers were experts so they were very much on the back foot when it came to speaking languages because they were always told by other French people that their accent was crap and that they were crap at learning languages and I would have to, I would try to say to them, well we can laugh in the class but we laugh with you, so if you make a mistake, it could be quite funny. Mm-hmm. But we're going to laugh together, so it's not that you have made a mistake and I'm going to point at you and all the class are going to point at you and say you're really crap. We're going to laugh because it's going to be fun, and then we're and if it's an interesting mistake, we can use it as an example of how to improve. Mm-hmm. So it would take them about a day and a half to get used to that idea. Yeah, laughter is effective tool to socially bond with people because such a positive experience. Yeah. People don't mm-hmm. see that. Um, but yeah, it's good that you mentioned that, like the social aspects of laughter. So talking about you in your humorous ways, you do improv, you do acting, mm-hmm. your comedy. Let's talk about the comedy stuff, what you do. Right. Okay. I do improv, I do acting, I do bits of improv. I'm part of an improv team called The Right Kind of Trouble. Right Kind of Trouble. And we have a monthly residency at the Rosemary Branch, one Thursday a month, and then we guest in other places. And it's a great team. There are eight of us at the moment, and I've got that right. It works on certain kind of, I guess it works in a format, this format. It's meant to be comedy improv. I don't suppose I feel very comic. But it is it, funny when I, when I see you. Mm. Yeah, and I, that, that it's, it's, the nature of, it's the nature of that kind of improvisation that is very often done above the pub or in other places. And it's a lot of this, the... Um, Thinking and the games and the, and, the, and the structures come from places like UCB in Chicago or Second UCB. City, uh, Union Citizens Brigade, I think. Don't quote me. Ooh. Somebody out there will know. Well, Google. Uh, and Second City and there are things like uh, a lot of Saturday Night Live alumni who've mm. done a lot of this kind of stuff. Um, so I've learned from that. I've learned a few things, such as. 
say the first thing that comes into your head. So how do you find you get into improv? I'm going to be improv, I'm going to do comedy, I'm going to make people laugh. Because it frightens me. Um, I had an ex-boyfriend for my birthday present. He got me a taste of improv class and I was scared. I was just like, this is stupid. Could it make you feel like you've got to like strip yourself and like and be like, do silly things and not feel self-conscious. And it took me nearly to literally like five minutes before the end of the course, the one day course, to be like, okay, I'm comfortable now. I didn't want to be running around like a chicken. I can't, I can't. So tell me, tell me how you got how into I got comp- into it. Well, I think number one, to choose somewhere to go is important. To find somewhere that you like, and there are different approaches. I did an approach with Goyer, which was acting. And he liked, he he loves theatre. He loves actors, but he could be quite cruel. And part of that is a persona that he plays to try and break down a lot of, um, I suppose, tricks and things that we think are funny or things that we think are good on stage, not necessarily funny or interesting or attractive. And he's trying to get you to do the best that you can be on stage, but he also has this very, I suppose for me, a timeless vision of what an actor or performer should be. And they need to bring their imagination, even if they're being directed in a play, a serious play or a funny play or whatever else, you need to want to give something to the audience. You're in a very privileged position and you need to be bringing your imagination and enough imagination so that the characters in a classic or in a written play want to come off the page to you as an actor, the character does. Why do I do improv, to come back to that question, and uh, improv, I suppose I wanted, I've done stuff where I've done characters on my own, Mm -hmm. and I've done a little bit of clowning on my own and gone to classes and done clowning as part of this class on stage. And then I thought, hmm, it would probably be good for me to do things with other people. And I thought, well, this is kind of a newish thing, newish to me, but not new. And let's see what it's like. So see how they you can do hear it. fireworks out there because that's what Mark does, sparks fireworks <laughs> in, in my life. There you go. You're such a charmer. I am. You're such a charmer. You must have Irish blood. It's all that just flows S- through you. S- let's not go back, back, back in time and slavery, but possibly. <laughs> possibly. Possibly. Um, so there's that. I don't. I didn't. I have the same fears as you. I mean, I go into. I went into the class thinking, you know, I'm not funny. I'm not this. I'm not that. And I, I think if you, it's, it's interesting during uh, performances because I'm working with people. Some people who already have done acting training. Other people who've done no acting training. And we're discovering together. And even for those with acting training, I, as much as anybody else. You don't always have to punch hard to get the laugh. Don't think that I want to go out there and be funny. Um, because that will lead you, that can lead you down a very empty road in terms of improv. I think the first, it's more, I think our shows are more rewarding. For me, they're more rewarding personally. And when I discuss with the group, I hope I'm not speaking for everybody uh, um, out of turn. But when we discuss together, the consensus usually is that when we've run, um, kind of scale back our ambitions and not go for the laugh, the quick laugh very quickly, very early in the scene on the first line, which is um, when you try to get very clever and get in your head, but just be very prosaic to prosaic, start a scene. Prosaic, sorry, that's a big word for me. Prosaic, very everyday, very normal, very... One of the basic rules of improv, but one of the rules we forget very quickly, is whatever you're doing, there are two of you in the scene usually, 
you know each other very well, because your husband and wife, your brother and sister, or something or something you haven't just met, particularly if you're just setting up the scene. You are people who know each other very well, and whatever you're doing is something that you know that you do routinely. Like give me an example. So brother and sisters were in, in a scene. In a scene, and they're having their weekly coffee at Starbucks mm-hmm. on Thursday morning. Or they're watching television, they're watching football, and that's what they do every week. So what do they break? Because sometimes some people in comedy, and I see it in improv, mm. like some people just go a bit left field, and like, that, that's not happening, that scene. If, if the brother and sister's in Starbucks, you're not going to hopefully talk about incest, and you're not hopefully going to be like, talking no, about I, random stuff. No, I don't think, I don't think you think about, talk, should talk about random stuff, but it should, I think you start off being, um, just saying something this, like this latte is great, yes. Yes, I know you love lattes. That's why I got you the pumpkin spiced one or whatever. Because mm-hmm. it's Halloween. Something will rip because you get to know the other characters. You get to know where you are. If you say it's a, a, a cafe, then people on the side can come in and do something else. Speak with other customers. They can be serving in, in the background. They may also get a way to come in and help the scene. Mm. Or maybe what you were so saying. So listening is super important and not just be, it's being giving, I guess, not selfish because also you want to, I want to say this, I don't want to say this line, but it doesn't flow. So you have yeah. to listen and be aware and mm. be very self serving It's not about you, it's about what helps the scene. Ideally, and I'm very bad at listening, so. Um, Why is that? I think I'm, because sometimes I'm so worried when I'm on stage, but it is, I, I, You've hit the nail on the head. I think it is about listening. Mm-hmm. You come in, and that's one of the things that you all get in all the rehearsal sessions, the coaching sessions, and all the classes, is that you may come in with an idea, but you're only responsible for saying one line. Hopefully, just you know, a, a subject or verb, an object, a little more than that, but just you know, quite a relatively short line. And you may think you are in your kitchen at home, but if you didn't get that out in the first line. And the other person comes in and says, you're at, um, you're at the NASA space station doing something on the control tower. Then you have to drop your idea of being in the kitchen. That's just it. You have to listen to the other person. Oh, this is where we are. So now I adapt a little bit. Yes, I brought in a coffee. Great. <laughs> and you can still mine the coffee or you can drop the mine and just adapt to that situation. How do you, know, I've seen this, and I think because uh, when I've seen the right kind of trouble, mm-hmm. and I've seen when you change scenes or with people tagging and stuff mm-hmm. like that, how do you know? Because some, I've seen it when people have done it wrong, not in your troupe. That's how you call it. Why is it called a troupe? I don't understand. Yeah. Troupe means group, right? Yeah. Why troupe or a team. Does free, does it need two people to be a troop or three people to be a troop? I think it, it probably needs four or five to be a troop. Okay. So you're a little team. If you're less than four, if you're more than four, you are a troop or troupe. I make, I make it up. Okay. So how do you know and sense? How do you know your, your team and the improv can just like know when to like change or tap? You just have to take a chance. And you learn with experience and you've got to take chances and it will go, it'll be right, you'll get it on the right moment. I don't know, one in a hundred times, one in a thousand times, the very right moment. Other times you'll be, oh, you came in a little too late or you came in a little too early, but it's okay. Because it's just improv, you know, nobody dies. They kill the scene. They die on stage. You die on stage, but nobody got killed, nobody got tortured. Yourself, your, your pride might have got hurt, but hey. You just keep on going, keep on going. Yeah, and I think I think it's something with with time you get used to what might work 
better here, what might not work better there. Some people are, like everything, they have more natural um, proclivities and more natural tendencies to play certain kinds of characters or come in at certain kinds of points and make a certain kind of edit you know, come in and tag in or come in as a new character, they might think, oh, the scene needs something. So mm. it might be, yes, you've got two very experienced players who've come in and they start off the scene with, you know, kind of two or three lines. Mm. And mm. it, for some reason, it's okay. The audience is okay with it, but it's not particularly happening. And somebody on the side thinks, oh, I have an idea, I'll come in with it. And if it kills the scene, it won't kill the scene necessarily. Um... And does it matter? No. Because you're going to learn. You're going to learn. Try and try again. So improv is... You did your first improv class and it became your love. How, how did it develop? I did my first improv class and decided I needed to keep going because... Um, because it was regular. It was also a regular activity. I'd just come off very intense work and I wanted to... I wasn't working in that particular period. So I wanted to be doing things with people and doing activities with people. So improv became that at the beginning. I liked the teacher I had in my first course and um, that helped a lot too because it made it easier to go back. It was very fun. It was a very fun and safe environment to work in in that first course. And you didn't feel... You may have felt yourself, oh, I want to be really funny, I want to be this, I want to be mm, that. Mm, mm. But that wasn't the thrust of the course. The thrust of the course was here are the basics of improv in the first week, the first eight weeks of basic improv course, and let's just play together. Play. Yeah, play, listen, scale it back, don't try to be clever from the off, just listen, and you had these exercises that were very straightforward, which were very good, and they're always good to come back to, I think. In, I suppose I worked in, I worked in many different kinds of fields, mm. not just performance. And there's some kind of basic things that's always good to have and mm. always good to come back to. Mm -hmm. And when I think of those lessons, yes, come back to the very beginning. Make very small additions to the scene. Mm -hmm. They don't have to be huge. I, I say this as a person who makes these huge, massive offers that are too big. Mm -hmm. so it, and, or else it's nothing at all. So somewhere in between, there's a small offer, and it's the scene builds. Building. Building. Building bricks. Building bricks, and it helps other people to come in and being specific. Because the more specific you are, the more, and the more down to earth at the beginning you are, the more your audience can see it. And they come along with you. They come along when with you. When jumping from random scenes, you're like, well, that doesn't make sense. And then they lose the, the suspense, they lose, they don't suspend their belief, and then, oh, what's this? I want this to end. They're not interested. Not and you're not talking about things that touch them. You know, if, you, if you're having coffee in the morning in your house, they understand that. Mm. They understand small silences or somebody comes in and says something. The more specific it is, the easier it is for your teammates to come in and propose something. Ah, than just being left field and, oh, we're yeah. having coffee, but now we're in a witch's cauldron. How did you get from there to there? I don't know. Just, yeah. You know, it's just, there it's just in the, the, the link and the payoff. Yeah. Okay. When I say a lot of improv, I feel like you have to be good at accents. I've got a dodgy accent. But I mean, <laughs> I, I can't do accents. You can do accents quite, quite well. Well, I had, I had a father who did accents. Who had a slightly musical and did a lot of accents, and that was partly hiding himself. And I do use that; I have used that myself to hide myself. And I was criticised by a lot of potential boyfriends 
uh, for a long time. Um, what kind of accent you do? Hmm? What accent you do? How how can you hide like in your real life an accent for that long? Because you because you do some shtick, you know. Somebody says something to you, gives you a compliment. Oh yeah, hey, see, at least that you know. At least the, you know, they say, oh, it's a really nice cup of coffee that you made, and you say, oh gee, at least I can make a cup of coffee. So you just went to just American accent. Just go into something so it takes you away from saying yes, you're welcome, or acknowledging it. Whatever. It was a way, it, is a, it can be used as a defense mechanism. My father used it as a way of, I suppose, trying to connect with people as well. But he would go the gamut from a kind of, he had this, I suppose, slightly, well, no, not slightly, middle class Irish accent. Which is, I don't know. Which I is my father's generation. It's slightly like mine, but slightly different. Mine is, I suppose, slightly more international here. Um, you know, with lots of THs, but we pronounce R's unlike the people in the south of England. Um, we didn't say Bath, we say Bath, that kind of thing. But he would go from that into a kind of real country, because we lived in, the, in a country town. He'd be like, you know, how are you? How are you, Paddy Joe? And that would boom up the house. Really? He would have the patient to be, the patient becoming, come in now, come in, Paddy, we'll see if we sort this tooth out now for you, you know? Is that like being very um, crude? Is that like Father Ted? Slightly. He wasn't meaning it to be crude. He was trying to make a connection. But the next person coming in might have been what I, what, what we disparagingly call West Brit. But particular people I'm thinking of would have been retired British Army majors and colonels who were fully British and came to live in Ireland. And they spoke like this, you know, awfully, awfully. So, hello, hello, Dennis. They would boom into the house and my father would boom back. I think you just want to play with them. Play I don't do accents very well. Um, think of them like children. I think the nice. I try to think of them as like children. I don't do because I'm a bit scared of doing, say, uh, Jamaican accents or African accents, African Caribbean accents. Because you're white. Or Indian, because I'm white and I wouldn't do it very well and I'm not sure I would be able to get across that I'm not trying to be disrespectful. <laughs> you know I mean? Can you do a Nigerian accent? Not even. I, I sometimes do a slightly bad Gabonese accent in What's French, that? but uh, from West, West Equatorial Africa. Africa. Ah. Um, but I think there's, there's so much around that that might not be great, but I think that, you know, children, when they hear a foreign accent, when they reach a certain um, mastery of their own language and they hear people on the beach or at the lake or in downtown from a different country speaking with a different accent or either from a different country or a different part of their own country, they very often imitate it. But and they don't do it meanly. They're just quite fascinated by the, by the accent. So, you know, in Ireland you'll hear somebody from Cork like this. Well, this is like a stereotype from Cork. I wouldn't be doing it very well now. <laughs> and okay. up the long road and down the short one because they go up, up. that is the uh, notion that we have of Cork accents they go up a bit like that and Dublin you know Dublin speak like that you know yeah. compared to Dublin and uh, or they speak like that like in South Coast Dublin they have more money you know wow like I don't know about that the letter R becomes the letter or you know the, the national broadcaster is O-R-T-E the rest of us are what O-R-T-E surely it's R-T-E I don't know but those things, but I, I think if you, you know, in improv, you don't have to worry about accents. We don't, you say somebody comes in and I say, ah, yes, I am French, you know, and then uh, one of my teammates comes in and 
one or two of them say. Yeah, we've got, got a lot of groupies around for Mark. A lot of women, even though he's gay, but we want to all four for Mark here. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have fireworks. Oh, fireworks. Fireworks. Fireworks night is. Oh, it's night. It's night for bonfires and fireworks. Mm hmm. Because tomorrow is Guy Fox. That's it, terrorists, celebrating terrorists. And uh, Catholic terrorists. Trying Catholic to ones? Up. Yeah, trying to bum bum British Parliament. <sighs> but going, just going back to accents for a second, I don't think you have to worry too much about doing them perfectly, because you're um, I can't even, do, I can't even do a Jamaican accent. My mum would be so ashamed of me. I think. Can you not channel your mother? Cassandra. No, she just talked like that, but that's how I... That, that's how I internalize it. Mm. But no, you know, but people either, like do to, I can do Jamaican accent and do like bacon, bacon, be like bacon, but bacon. I'm like ah. No. Maybe you don't like it. I don't know. I want to do. I just mm. feel like my, I just can't squeeze it out of me. But I need to learn how to do it for comedy. I guess. Well, I don't think there's. Any, I don't think there's any have to for comedy. I think so. I think accents is such a great skill to have. It helps with characters. They are they are a tool in your toolbox. It's a right? tool. They're a powerful tool. They're a powerful tool. It's a technical but, skill as well, you know. But if you don't, yeah. But if you don't have it to start with, then then don't worry about it. Do what I think. Do you click 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 click? No, I not always that either. I don't want to be a train wreck. What? <laughs> do you? But you need to be. You need to do you. In a way that works on stage. Right, as a performer, so it isn't just so there is the authentic you, um, but the you in the cafe might not translate well on stage. So if you're just playing you as you are in the cafe on stage, the audience might not like you. There's one thing that is one way of looking at it. So you might have something else that is very valuable on stage and very beautiful about you on stage. Like what, okay. Mark? I don't know. I haven't seen you in performance, Cassandra. There are a lot of things that you have. That are wonderful in performance, and you just have to. Dis but you have to do them with an outside eye that you trust looking at you. You also have to try them in front of an audience to see what works and listen to your audience. It's not about pandering to your audience, but if you're doing something and the audience doesn't like it, try it again the next time. Okay, because it could be depend on the audience. But if really the audiences aren't liking it. Question yourself. Maybe you have the wrong audiences. That could be true, or maybe what you're uh, there's a, a mismatch between what you're presenting, what what you want to present, and what you're actually presenting. Ah. It's just that it's craft. Some of it's craft, and some of it is knowing what's genuine to you. you authenticity, know, authenticity. And you are very important. Yeah, and authenticity on stage is different also. Too, because there's an aspect of you that people might like. I rejected a lot of stuff. There are things. Find what makes you light on stage, and I don't mean light and superficial. Um, but find, and I suppose I buy into this whole Gaudier thesis, so I have to be a bit careful. I can be quite camp, campery, gives me a bit of lightness on stage. So while not every character needs to be camp, it might be useful for me as a warm-up or as a character to come on stage and use that campery. And not necessarily be, re be referencing gay things all the time on stage, I don't mean that, but use that kind of lightness and theatricality to bring lightness onto the stage and into the room. And that's one thing that works for me. Mm, mm. It doesn't work for everybody. Mm. 
but it's one thing that works for me. It's something I don't consciously always love to do when I'm out, but I will do it in certain places. So it's whatever makes your imagination fly, and you have to open the imagination of your audience. Open it up. And you have a lot going. I know you have a lot going. So it's about trying them out, and I don't, I don't, I'm not sold on that any one thing is is the trick. Yeah. And I'm I'm not sold on the fact that you cannot don't buy you cannot do accents. You might not be as gifted or authentic in your accents as somebody like Meryl Streep. Mm, might, mm. It might not be might be less of a natural thing. Mm, mm. But um, that can also be funny. Mm, I mean it's mm. funny in improv. You know, I can do some kind of Irish accent and I have a, a Northern Irish friend in the team with Northern Irish a player in our team, Jane, and she does a very good Northern Irish accent, and I do a kind of a comic Northern Irish accent, just slightly country, I'm told, but it's... And then our British, the British members of our team are very fascinated by these Irish ah. accents. So they love to come in and be the Irish cousins of the Irish family mm, in these different mm, scenes, mm, mm, mm. with varying degrees of success. Oh, wow. And it doesn't matter. Because in a sense, you set up the world that they just have to identify themselves as Irish, but it's fine. Or you go and you play, try to play a Russian character, and they come in and they're doing, yeah, they come up with a German accent, but they say they're Russian. That's fine. <laughs> it's, well, it's, it's improv. It's the, the way how you carry yourself across, and that self-belief and the confidence, so you, you go there. And it's funny, because you're not trying to, you're not creating a real, very realistic world in improv. Mm -hmm. If you were creating a character where you had to be one person is playing um, somebody who grew up in Hamburg and another person plays somebody who grew up in Moscow, for some reason, you know, in a, in a serious dramatic film, now that would kill the enjoyment if you couldn't get some approximation of the accent right. What? Because it's a different world. You were trying to be more realistic. Mm, mm, so, when, mm, mm, as an Irish person, if I hear an accent that doesn't quite ring true mm, mm. in a film. Mm. I go, mm. Mm. No, I don't buy mm. it. You have to, yeah, you have to be careful. You've got to make the signals to show that you, you know, not your audience is not stupid. They'll, they'll go with you to, to a certain percent yeah. and, and to hone that. And it's, and it's about trust as well. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And, and, and enjoying it. I think if you want to learn accents, you just have to go and enjoy them and take some of that pressure off. You know, we where, yes, you have to really want it, but there's a point in performance where you want too much and you're too tense and it's not going to happen, so you have to so slightly let go. There's a block there. There's a block you You have to slightly let go. And I just like playing around with that since sometimes I sometimes get in trouble, but I don't usually because I usually come back and... Do um, get there. I get there. And I, you I, know I, your limits. I work in retail at the moment, and I have lots of customers come in in the supermarket, and I quite enjoy it because I quite I talk to them all. If they ask me a question, yeah. and I like them from different places. And you know, I also do a London accent sometimes, but I'm little wary of doing it with too many people. But they don't mind so much. It's improv. If it's <laughs> if they can see it's not being condescending, if they can see it's being done with fun. And affection. Your intent, the intention is very important, especially in improv, and not people just putting people down. But talking about improv, you are impromptu king. You win lots of competitions with your um, being really good at um, impromptu speaking. Um, recently, you're a current champion, and you're in the championships for next year for that um, <laughs> for, for for the UK. But it's true; it's fact. It's not me just making it up. You have all the the medals and the and, and the trophies to, to prove it. 
Um, what makes you so good at impromptu speaking? Because I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna test you. I'm gonna test you in, in, in a second. So, but until you think about that, I, I gave you a pre-warning. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, oh, how, how are you good at that? Because I think with comedy, um, stand-up or improv, um, I think the best jokes I've made is when it's impromptu off the cuff when I'm in the moment sensing the crowd mm-hmm. and using that so what makes you so present where you can just literally be humorous and just do your spiel I've had a lot of practice mm. I'm much older I have as I say I've worked in different customer or client facing jobs mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've spent hours on my feet speaking to people you know I've done stuff where I've been in situations where I do maybe nine contact hours in the day five, six, seven days a week, four or five weeks in a row with, with people in rooms doing training and, 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 and development, but where you have to also engage them and keep them engaged for eight hours or nine hours in the day because you don't get a break. You're doing lunch with them. You're doing something else. Um, I've also worked as a tour guide where you might also have 12 hours with these people. And you've got to judge the breaks wow, and tour, give them important information. A lot of energy with tour guiding. And you have to give them the important information, where the lose, how does this work, how does that work. But you will also make up some lies, because all tour guides make up lies about where they, about the country you're in, or stories that are engaging, that may or may not be true, but they're fun to hear about the Queen or about past uh, historic figures or so something. So you're like a professional blagger then? I have been a professional blagger, and I think maybe it comes from partly my father. My father, similar to my father, perhaps uncertain of the world, uncertain of my place in it. And um, I don't, have done a lot of practice to keep people at bay, probably, also. And I'm, if I were being a bit pop psychology about it, maybe it comes from being gay and negotiating that and saying, not always being sure of my footing. So every situation you go into, I'm not saying I'm unhappily gay or, you know, but before you... Um, before you reach maturity, psychological maturity and physical maturity, um, just wanting to be accepted a bit or just wanting to fly a little bit under the radar and uh, getting on with it. But it's a lot of hours. I mean, a lot of it is just a lot of hours and practicing, gauging, practicing, and, and judging reactions. You know, you when you're doing tour guide, you've got to keep them on the board and you say, ah, they got this. Okay, I'll use that joke again tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Or I'll use that spiel. Oh, they haven't got that one. Oh, there's somebody here I can riff off. And I would always choose one or two people in, in the bus of 50, coach wow. 50 people to riff off of and have fun with them and with the other people. Ah, that's how you do it. Well, so I do that as well currently in my supermarket job where I riff with people. I just think, look at this, because I do the discounting. I say, look at this, and now it's dessert time. Salt, cholesterol, fat, what's not to like, come here. And do people that run towards you? Some of them do, they say, oh, it's you. (laughs) (laughs) You I'm going to come wherever you were, because I need to know, like, is there a certain time when you do the the reduced tickets with, uh, because I um, labels because I need to know because sometimes they random on purpose I don't like it I want to know what time because I want to get my reduced stuff between 11 a.m. and 7 p.m. in my shop that's not helpful I know but it'd be, it'd be, I'm running around like a blue ass fly for those eight hours going check 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 Excuse me, I've got any. Sorry. Hello, madam. You're looking for sausages. Yes, we have sausages down here on aisle 17. Follow me. I can't find your Yorkshire puddings. Of course you can't, madam. That's because they're so very well hidden. 
please follow me. They're in very trendy grey, which is impossible to see on the shelf. Wow. Because my colleagues never speak like that, but I understand it's frustrating when you come into a shop, you don't want to spend your entire afternoon there, your entire day. So I get it, and I say to him, yes, I can't find this, and I say, I know, it's very frustrating, madam, but we understand you have nothing better to do with your weekend than spend both days in our shop. And then I wink. And wow. Because they know I'm on their side. Oh, you're so empathetic. Yeah. Um, 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 is it empathic or empathetic? I don't know which one. It is. I'm a bit passive aggressive too, but then I turn. I've, I've, I've heard about. I've, I've felt yeah. that once. Have you felt that once? From you, and then I cried, and then I got over it, and then here I am. <laughs> so I'm going to test you, as I said. So since you're uh, impromptu speaking and champion, and gold, and gold. So we just had some mini cheddars. It's mm. like that, like. How do you call them? Oh, they're like little little biscuits, mm-hmm. but they're not really biscuits. Like halfway crisp, halfway. Halfway between a cracker and a, a, yeah. a cheese cracker and a cheese biscuit, darling. Hard cheese biscuit. food, hard food. So um, mini cheddars are the oh. best things since sliced bread. Please talk. Mini cheddars are the best things since sliced bread. They definitely are. However, there is competition. Because you've got Dr. Cog's, yes, you can tell, I'm a bit of a poser. Dr. Cog has got Emmental and pumpkin seed crackers, and they're even better than cheddar. And mini cheddars. I hate to say this. you still got, like, 50 seconds to go. I was only pausing for breath. Okay. This is not just a minute, <laughs> thank you very much. And why are Emmental and pumpkin seeds better? Well, they're more middle class. They're kind of virtual signaling that I am a person who has thought about this. I have the money to spare, even if I don't. And I'm a poser. Here I go, I've got a mini cheddar. Do you hear that fireworks? Wow. Hmm. But you can still carry on. However, mini cheddars make me feel I'm in England. Mm. Mm. Eating cheddar, I can have Coca-Cola with them, or milk. I like milk. And then you get calcium twice with your mini cheddars and your milk. You feel very virtuous until you read the back of the pack. Then I don't like to read the back of the pack until long after I finish whatever it is that I'm eating. Mm-hmm. Never a good idea to read the back of the pack. Still got for 10 seconds? Still for 10 seconds. You are timing very well, Cassandra. And that is really all I have to say on mini cheddars because there are other things that I much prefer, such as Nutella with fromage frais and banana. That is the real food. That's the real deal, people. That and French smash. Not English smash, French. I don't know what smash is. Smash is instant potato. Wow. Instant mash. As you can hear, like fireworks are popping off. Um, I think they sound like clapping. I'm going to just take that. That's the. Fuck me. I did not. I'm scared. I think we're just going to wrap up here. Because <laughs> uh, this is too much fireworks going up. But what I did wanted to ask Mark, how can we find you? You can't. Okay. I'm so bad on social media. <laughs> Snap, crackle and pop. Mm-hmm. He went with a bang! Okay. Ah! okay. I guess guess what time of year this is. Alright. Hold on. I wanna pause. So we're back. So we'll find you. How do you find the right, the right, ty- right type of trouble? Ooh, good question. I think it is at 
T-R-K-O-T Improv for Twitter handle and I think the right kind of trouble on Facebook. Where, where do we find you, your, your residency? The Rosemary Branch Theatre in Islington. Islington, darling. Islington, Islington darling. That's my best attempt at an English accent, the Rosemary Branch. Okay. I still want to challenge you on another, like, uh, can you just get warmed up with, with the improv? Mm-hmm. I want to say, why are black bags better than red bags? Why are black bags better than red bags? Yeah. <laughs> that may be your opinion, Cassandra. I like both for different reasons. I like black bags when I go to Clone Zone or Prowler. You will not know what those shops are, but they're quite nice. They, um, they have all kinds of toys and books and things that I like. And so it's quite nice to have a black. They have black bags that you can't see through, because I don't necessarily want to share all that information with everybody out there on the street. You know, they don't need to know what I'm buying somewhere. And they're great for protecting books, because I'm so bad when I put it back in my bag. Red bags, not red bags. Red bags, you just know when it's on the luggage carousel coming through. You're coming on a plane full of lots of business people who have all their grey and black bags coming off that luggage carousel. You have a red one, you're the only man, you're the only business person with a red one. And you can find it so easily. And it says, I'm here, I don't care. And I'm not the same as you people in grey suits, even though I am, but I'm not. So I'm trying to work out which one is then, the black or the red bag? Depends whether I'm at Prowler and Clone Zone or whether I'm at the luggage carousel, obviously, or whether I'm sauntering down the streets of Vauxhall and Soho trying to get attention. Obviously red bag at that point. So bags are contextual, folks. Bags are contextual. Get that. You heard it here first. <laughs> so um, shout out to Janan, the co-host, who is a bit unwell. Uh, thank you, Mark Hanley, impromptu speaking on um, wizard and champion, current champion, and hopefully be champion next year at the finals. When do, when when was the finals? May 2019, I think. Yeah. May 2019. So watch out to that. See that he wins. Obviously, hopefully he will win. And um, looking to see your troop or troupe, what I would say, the right kind of trouble. Stop talking about my hair like that. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Bye.